We have a response to Archbishop Vigano from Cardinal Walter Brandmuller. He never mentions Vigano by name, but he is responding to his call for the overturning of the Second Vatican Council. For those who don't know, Cardinal Brandmuller is retired, former Roman Curia member of some esteem, and he is one of the, unless I'm mistaken, he is one of the dubia cardinals. So again, I generally consider him on the right side of most things. I present the, his, his response, and we can call it rebuttal, to Vigano without further comment. Vatican II. The Difficulties of Interpretation. By Walter Brandmuller. That in interpreting the conciliar documents, one can arrive at conflicting opinions is certainly not a novelty in the history of the councils. Formulating truth of faith means expressing the unspeakable mystery of divine truth in human language. However, it is and remains a bold undertaking, which St. Augustine has already compared to a child's attempt to empty the sea with a bucket. And in this endeavor, even an ecumenical council cannot do much more than that child. Nothing strange, therefore, if even the infallible doctrinal statements of a council or a pope can define, can define the revealed truth and therefore delimit it with respect to error but never grasp the fullness of the divine truth. This is the essential fact that we must not lose sight of the difficulties of interpretation that Vatican II poses to us. To illustrate them, we will limit ourselves to those conciliar texts which are perceived as particularly difficult by the so-called traditionalist circles. First of all, however, it is good to take a look at the particularities that distinguish Vatican II from previous ecumenical councils. In this regard, there is a premise to be made. To the historian of the council, Vatican II appears, in many respects, above all, as a council of superlatives. We start from the observation that in the history of the Church, no other council has been prepared as intensely as Vatican II. Of course, even the council that preceded it had been very well prepared when it began on December 8, 1869, probably the theological quality of the preparatory schemes were even higher than that of the council that followed it. However, it is impossible to ignore that the number of ideas and proposals sent from all over the world, as well as the way in which they were elaborated, were superior to all that had been seen up to them. That Vatican II was a council of superlatives emerged conspicuously on October 11, 1962, when an immense number of bishops, 2,440, entered the procession in St. Peter's Basilica. If Vatican I, with its approximately 642 fathers, had found a place in the right transept of the basilica, now the entire central nave had been transformed into a synodal hall. In the 100 years between the two councils, the church had become, as it emerged so visibly, so impressively, a universal church, not only in name, but also, in fact, a reality that was now reflected in the number of 2,440 fathers and their countries of origin. Add to this that for the first time in history, a council was able to vote with the help of electronic technology and that acoustic pro and had acoustic problems overcome. And since we are talking about modern media, before then it had never happened that, as in 1962, about a thousand journalists from all over the world had been credit accredited to the council, this also made Vatican II the best-known council of all time, a first-rate media event. Council of Superlatives, however, is particularly so with regard to its results. Of the 1,135 pages that made up the edition of the decrees of all the councils generally considered ecumenical, or about 20, 
Vatican II alone produced 315. That is well over a quarter. Therefore, it certainly occupies a special place in the series of all the ecumenical councils, even only according to some more material external criteria. Beyond this, however, there are particularities that distinguish Vatican II from preceding councils, for example, as regards the functions of the ecumenical council. The councils are supreme teachers, supreme legislators, supreme judges, under and with the Pope, to whom these roles belong even without a council. Not all councils have performed this function. If, for example, the First Council of Lyon in 1245, with the excommunication and deposition of Emperor Frederick II, acted as a court and, moreover, passed laws, Vatican I did not hold trials or pass laws, but decided exclusively on doctrinal issues. The Council of Vienna of 1311 and 1312, however, has both judged and passed laws, and also decided on doctrinal matters. The same applies to the Councils of Constance of 1414 and 1418, and of the Basel Fer Ferrara Florence of 1431 and 1439. Vatican II, on the other hand, did not pronounce judgments, did not really pass laws, and did not even make definitive decisions on matters of faith. Rather, it has given shape to a new type of council, meaning a pastoral council, therefore of caring of souls, aimed at making known to the world that then the teaching and instructions of the gospel in a more attractive and orienting way. In particular, he expressed no doctrinal condemnation. John XXIII, in his speech for the solemn opening of the council, spoke expressly about it. Quote, there is no time in which the church has not opposed these errors. He has often condemned them, and sometimes with the utmost severity. As for the present tense, I prefer to use the medicine of mercy. He thinks that today's needs must be met exposing the value of his teaching more clearly than condemning. Quote. Well, as we know, fifty years after its conclusion, the council would have written a glorious page if, in the footsteps of Pius XII, he had found the courage of a repeated and expressed condemnation of communism. The fear of promoting doctrinal con condemnations and dogmatic definitions, on the other hand, led to the conclusion that at the end of the Council there were no conciliar statements with a degree of authenticity, and therefore also with a completely different binding character. Thus, for example, the Constitution Lumen Gentium on the Church and Diverbum on Divine Revelation undoubtedly have the nature and binding character of authentic doctrinal teachings, although here, too, nothing has been defined strictly in the strict sense. Well, for example, already the Declaration on Freedom of Religion, Dignitatis Humanae, according to Klaus Mostorf, quote, takes a position on issues of time without a clear normative content, end quote. In fact, this applies to disciplinary documents which regulate pastoral practice. The binding nature of the conciliar text is therefore of a different degree. Taking a next step, the question then must be asked about the relationship between Vatican II and the whole tradition of the Church. We find an answer by analyzing how much or how little the conciliar text drew on tradition. It is sufficient to examine in this sense, as an example, the Constitution Lumen Gentium. Just take a look at the notes of the text. Thus it can be seen that ten previous councils are mentioned in the document. Among these, Vatican I is taken as a reference twelve times, the Tridentine as many as sixteen. Already from this it is clear that, for example, a, quote, detachment from Trento, end quote, must be excluded in an absolute manner. The relationship with tradition appears even closer if one thinks that among the popes, Pius XII is mentioned 55 times, Leo XIII on 17 occasions, and Pius XI in 12 passages. Benedict XIV, the 15th, Pius IX, Pius X, Innocent I, 
and Galatius are added to them. The most impressive respect aspect, however, is the presence of the fathers in the text of Lumen Gentium. The fathers to whose teachings the council refers are even, 40, are even 44. Among them stand out Augustine, Ignatius of Antioch, Cyprian, John Chrysostom, and Irenaeus. The great theologians or the doctors of the church are also mentioned, Thomas Aquinas and Twelve Steps, together with seven other names of weight. Even just this list is enough to illustrate the extent to which the fathers of Vatican II understood each other in the current of tradition, integrated in that process of receiving and transmitting, which is the raison d'etre of the church. Quote, in fact, I receive from the Lord what I have passed on to you, says the apostle. It is evident that also in this respect we cannot speak of a new beginning of the church, therefore, of a new Pentecost. This leads to important consequences for the interpretation of the council, and more precisely, not on the council event, but of its texts. A central tangible concern in many of Benedict XVI's statements has been to highlight the close organic connection of Vatican II with the rest of the church's tradition, thus highlighting that a hermeneutic that believes it sees a break with tradition in Vatican II is wrong. This hermeneutic of rupture is made as much by those who are in Vatican II see a departure from the authentic faith of faith, the authenticity of the faith, therefore an error or even a heresy, as by those who, th who through such a break with the past wanted to dare a courageous departure towards new shores. However, the presumption of a break in the teaching and sacramental action of the church is impossible even for theological reasons only. If we believe in the promise of Jesus Christ to remain with his church until the end of time, to send the Holy Spirit who will introduce us to the richness of truth, then it is even absurd to think that the teaching of a church, transmitted authentically, in the time can prove wrong in one or the other point, or that an error that has always been rejected can be revealed at some time as truth. Whoever thinks it possible would be a victim of that relativism for which truth is essentially subject to exchangeability. That is, in reality, it does not exist at all. Each council gives its specific contribution to this tradition. Of course, it cannot consist in adding new content to the deposit of the church's faith and even less than the elimination of teachings of faith handed down so far. Rather, what is accomplished here is a process of development, clarification, discernment, and this with the help of the Holy Spirit, a process that leads to making each council, with its definitive doctrinal declarations, enter as an integral part in the overall tradition of the Church. From this point of view, the councils are always open forward, towards a more complete, clear, and current doctrinal announcement, never backwards. A council can never contradict those who preceded it, but it can integrate, sp specify, continue. However, things are different for the council as a body of legislation. The latter can, and certainly must, face, but always within the limits indicated by faith, the concrete needs of a particular historical situation. And from this point of view, it is in principle subject to change. From these observations, one should have emerged clearly. Everything that has also been said also applies to Vatican II. It too is nothing more, but also nothing less than a council between, alongside and after the others. It is not above or even outside, but falls within the series of the Church's ecumenical councils. Already, Vincenzo de Larini expressly reflects on this in his Commomitorium, quote, What did the Church aspire to through her council decrees? not to ensure that what before the council was simply believed after was believed with greater diligence, that what was previously announced without force was later announced with greater intensity, that what was first celebrated with absolute certainty was later adored with greater zeal. This, I believe, and nothing else. 
The church, shaken by the innovations of the heretics, has always obtained through its council decrees what it has previously received from the ancestors only through tradition, has now deposited in its writings for all posterity. End quote. He did this by summarizing so much in a few words and often for the purpose of a clearer understanding. This authentically Catholic conviction finds expression in the definition of the Second Council of Nicaea in 787, which thus states, We recognize, in fact, that the Holy Spirit lives in it we define, then follow the central principles of the conciliar decree. The last of the four anathemas is also particularly important. If someone rejects every ecclesiastical tradition, whether written or unwritten, be anathema. By holding a council, the church realizes its deepest nature. The church, and therefore the council, transmits by living and lives by transmitting. Tradition is the true realization of its essence. The decisive element of the interpretive horizon is the authentic transmission, not the spirit of the time. This absolutely cannot mean rigidity and immobility. The gaze towards today must not fail. Current questions are the ones that require an answer. But the elements that make up the answer can only come from divine revelation offered once and forever, which the Church authentically transmits to us over the centuries. This transmission, therefore, also constitutes the criterion to which each new answer must refer if it is to be true and valid. These fundamental considerations must also be taken into account in the interpretation of the most debated Council texts. These are mainly the declarations Nostra Aetate and Dignitates Humanae, which have raised objections from the fraternity of St. Pius X. The latter accuses the council of having erred in the faith. To this, however, we must reply with decision. It is quite clear that a conciliar text formulated in 1965, which at the time was intended, starting from the situation in which it was born and based on the intention of its affirmations, when it proclaimed in today's world must be necessarily be contemplated in the current interpretive horizon. Take, for example, Nostratate. Those who accuse this text of religious indifferentism today should read it in the light of Dominus Jesus, which would categorically rule out any misunderstanding in the sense of indifferentism or syncretism. With ever new impulses, the post-conciliar magisterium, through its clarifications, has removed the basis for any erroneous interpretation of the conciliar texts, both in the traditionalist and in the progressive sense. After these fundamental observations, I would like now to explain another interpretive principle, which results... From the historicity of each text, just as all the texts, and therefore all the magisterial texts, arise from a particular historical situation and are also determined by the concrete situation of their conception, they are also proclaimed with a specific intention in a specific historical moment. We must not lose sight of this principle when today we are going to interpret one of these texts. We must also take into account the fact that the hermeneutic horizon thus determined shifts, is modified in the same measure in which the current interpreter is distant from the moment in which the text was born. This means that past interpretations, depending on how far away they are over time, can make more or less other only claims of historical interests. This awareness is particularly important when it comes to the text of church's magisterial and pastoral ministry. One could immediately object that the truth, especially that of divine revelation, is an eternal and immutable truth which cannot be altered. Certainly this cannot be questioned. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away, says the Lord. However, it is equally true that the recognition of this eternal truth by man, subjected to historical change, is subject to change just like the man who recognizes. That is to say that, depending on the historical moment, one or the other aspect of eternal truth is grasped, recognized, and understood in a newer and deeper way. Precisely for this reason, even a conciliar text, if contemplated in the spiritual, cultural, etc., context, and in the light of our time, it can be understood in a new, deeper, and clearer way. 
To the extent that we take this concept into account in our efforts to understand the teachings of Vatican II today, and today we will be able to overcome various conflicts that arise in this regard. Of course, the interpretation of the Council is the task of the theological debate, which has always dealt with it. In fact, the results of this debate finally found space in the documents of the post-conciliar magisterium. In light of what has been said, it would be a serious mistake not to take it into account in the interpretation of the Council for the present time, and to act as if time had stopped at 1965. I would like to illustrate what has been said with three examples that seem to me particularly characteristic. In this regard, the Nostra Tate Declaration on the Relationship Between Christian and Non-Christian Religions and the Unitatis Reden Integratio degree on Ecumenism stand out immediately. For a long time, the two documents have been subject to criticism from these so-called traditionalist circles. Both are accused of a lack of clarity in decision-making and upholding the truth, that is, of syncretism, relativism, and indifferentism. At the time of the approval of the text, it was difficult to predict that they could offer holds for such criticism. It has been the experience of totalitarianism in the first half of the 20th century, and the persecutions lived together to remind Hebrews and Christians, Catholics, Protestants, and Orthodox, of the fundamental things they had in common— the commitment to overcome ancient hostilities and for a new coexistence was generally perceived as a duty imposed by the Lord. Read in this spirit and against this background, the two documents have given very strong impulses. It was then the magisterium, with the Declaration Dominus Jesus, that removed the foundations for any indifferentism and unequivocally indicated Jesus Christ as the only way to salvation and the one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church of Jesus Christ as, unique, as a unique community of salvation for every man. Something similar happened through the various clarifications of the meaning of the famous subsisted in. The ecumenical discourse there had been statements that could arouse the impression that the Catholic Church was only one of the many aspects of the Church of Jesus Christ. The interpretation of subsisted in, also confirmed by Dominus Jesus, eliminated any misunderstanding. Another scandalum is represented for many by the declaration Dignitatis Humanae on freedom of religion. She too is accused of indifferentism betrayal of the truth of the faith in contradiction to the syllabus of errors of Blessed Pius IX. The fact that this is not the case is evident in, in the interpretive principles formulated above are implied. The two documents were born in different historical contexts and must respond to different situations. The syllabus of errors, as Gregory XVI and cyclical Merari Voss previously, was aimed at the philosophical refutation of the claim of absoluteness of truth, especially the truth revealed through indifferentism and relativism. Pius IX had stressed that the error has no reason with respect to the truth. Dignitatis Humanae instead starts from a complete different situation. Created by the totalitarianisms of the 20th century, which, through ideological constraint, had denigrated the freedom of the individual, of the person. Furthermore, the fathers of Vatican II had before them the political reality of their time, which, under different conditions, but not to a lesser extent, threatened the freedom of the person. For this reason, at the center of Dignitatis Humanae, there was not the undisputed untouchability of truth, but the freedom of the person from any external constraint regarding religious conviction. In this regard, it is good to assure the supporters of the absolute ahistoricity of the truth that no theologian or philosopher with common sense would speak of changeability, fickleness of truth. Instead, what changes, which is subject to change, is the recognition, awareness of the truth by man who changes totally. Here occupies a place of excellence, the profession of faith of the peoples of God, which Paul VI proclaimed in the climax of the post-conciliar crisis. In summary, the syllabus defended the truth, Vatican II, the freedom of the person. 
it is difficult to discern a contradiction between the two documents if they are contemplated in their historical context and understood according to what the intentions of their statements were then. Moreover, for the purpose of a correct interpretation, today the whole post-conciliar magisterium must be taken into account. Finally, mention should also be made of worldly optimism, evidently a little naive, which had animated the Council Fathers during the editing of Gaudium et Spes. As soon as the Council was over, however, it became evident that this world was undergoing an increasingly rapid process of secularization, which pushed the Christian faith and religion in general to the margins of society. It was therefore necessary to redefine the relationship between the Church and this world, as John calls it, and to complete interpret the council text, for example, in the sense of the speeches of Benedict XVI during the visit to Rome. This means, however, that a current interpretation of the council, which brings out the essence of the conciliar teaching by making it fruitful for the faith and teaching of the church of the present, must read its texts in the light of the whole post-conciliar magisterium, and understanding its documents as actualizing of the council. As highlighted at the beginning of Vatican II, it is not the first nor will it be the last council. This means that his magisterial declarations must be examined in the light of tradition, that is to say, interpreted in such a way as to be able to identify, with respect to it, an extension, a deepening, or even a clarification, but not a contradiction. Transmission, tradition, does not imply the simple delivery of a well-sealed package, but an organic vital process, which Vincenzo de Lorenz compares to the progressive transformation of the person from child to man. It is always that same person who goes through the stages of development, this applies to the areas of doctrine in the sacramental hierarchical structure of the Church, but not to its pastoral action, whose effectiveness continues to be determined by the needs of the contingent situations of the world around it. Here, too, of course, any contradiction between practice and dogma is to be excluded. It is an active reception process, which must also be carried out on the basis of unity within the Church. In fact, there are also ca cases, not in the realm of faith, but that of morality, in which what was forbidden yesterday may be appropriate for today. If, for example, before Vatican II, the absolute ban on cremating the dead resulted in the excommunication of the Catholic who had chosen cremation, at a time when cremation lost its appearance of protest against faith and the resurrection from the dead, it was possible to lift this ban. This applies in similar ways in the case of ban the ban on interests in the 15th-16th century, when the Franciscans and Dominicans, and more precisely in Florence, challenged each other in bitter duels from the pulpits, where the contenders accused each other of heresy, because the entity of the allowed interest rate and threatened the opponent to burn in the flames of hell. It was a moral problem, born with the changes of economic reforms, and then became obsolete again. We must go slowly, therefore, also in the debate of Vatican II and its interpretation, which in turn must take place against the background of the situation that has changed over time. In this regard, the magisterium of the post-conciliar popes has made important contributions, which, however, we have been, not been sufficiently taken into account, while well, it should be noted precisely in the current debate. Then in this situation, it is good to remember the warning to the patience and modesty of St. Paul to Timothy. See Second Timothy verse 4. Unfortunately, these comparisons continue to take on forms that do not agree with, well with but brotherly love. It should be possible to reconcile zeal for truth with fairness and love of neighbor. In particular, it would be advisable to avoid the hermeneutic of suspicion, which accuses the interlocutor in the departure of her heretical conceptions. In summary, the difficulties in interpreting the conciliar texts do not derive only from their content. The way in which our discussions take place in general should increasingly be taken into consideration. Signed by Cardinal Walter Brandmiller.